You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's podcast, in a beautiful day here in Perth, it's my wonderful pleasure to have Neil County from Neil County Architect to talk us through a little bit of his passion for bricks and some of the beautiful projects that he's entered into our Think Brick Awards. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. Neil, before we get started talking about bricks, I just wondered whether we could take you back a little bit to your childhood and what it was like for you growing up. Sure. Well, my childhood involved bricks, which <laughs> now that I think about it. Um, look, I had a wonderful upbringing, or what I recall, and my father was an artist. He was, um, worked at the West Australian newspaper as an artist and became head artist. He also did many exhibitions outside his day job, and he worked in lots of medium, oil paints, pen and ink, acrylic, and was also called upon to make scale models of buildings and do perspectives of buildings when back in the day we didn't have perspective artists and model makers. So people would go to the West Australian and say, here's something for your art department, show us what it's going to look like. And he ended up making a scale model of the Commonwealth Games athletes running track, which an image of that is at the um, Perth Stadium at the moment, which is great. And he also did many significant buildings and bits of infrastructure like the new Narrows Bridge at the time. He did a sort of quite cross-sectional drawing of that. So that was a big influence. And he was also very hands-on. So he built our house before I was born. We hand dug a hole in the backyard for our swimming pool as a family. How long did that take? Oh, that took... It didn't take that long. He was... I could never keep up with him. He had a six-pack when he was in his mid-70s. So he was a fit guy. But we sort of did brick paving at the front of the house in this wonderful big circle, sort of turning circle, and brick paved the backyard. So it had a lot to do with bricks as I was um, young with my family, yeah. And when did sort of architecture evolve itself as what you were going to do? How did that come to you? Well, you know, it, wasn't, it probably wasn't that complicated for me. I had a, a brother who's a fair bit older, was 10 years older than me. He studied architecture. And that coupled with the fact that my father was essentially an architect, really. He drew buildings and he even designed buildings, for better or worse. But uh, that was my world and I never really thought about doing anything else. I wasn't sort of destined to be an architect, but I just sort of fell into it from that, I guess. Okay. Yeah. And where did you study at university? Can you take us through that? Yeah, I studied at University of Western Australia, which at the time was quite wonderful. Uh, We had very senior lecturers uh, who probably hadn't really worked in the industry for a long time. Not all of them, but most of them. But we were in these timber buildings that had been called temporary buildings for 25 years. And we were in them for probably the last two years and we thought it was fantastic because the whole university had to walk between these buildings where our faculty was. And so I think people were pretty scared to walk between our two buildings because we used to have fashion shows and outrageous dress-ups. And we sort of took ownership of the the studios because we'd be there day and night. We got to know Des, the security guard who'd come through in the middle of the night and we'd be the only people on campus so he'd stop and spend time with us. (laughs) 
And then one night, Des came by for his normal visit, and we decided that this rabbit warren of separate little rooms would be much better if they were all connected. So we smashed holes in all the walls and connected them all together. And Des said, I haven't been here tonight. I haven't seen anything. (laughs) And another time, we had a student conference, and we painted the outside of the building with all these images of famous architects in the middle of the night. It was a white building and we painted it in black, so it was very contrasting. It looked fantastic, but it only lasted six hours because the Vice-Chancellor walked into the university between these buildings where we'd done this and he had the university maintenance people right onto it at 9 o'clock in the morning and paint straight over it. But we've got photos of it. It looks wonderful. And was university what you expected? Well, no, it's a whole new world for me because yeah. I was educated at a government school and it was like having a private education for me going to university. Yeah. Another whole world, which I absolutely loved. Yeah. And you obviously had the influence of your father and, mm. you know, your older brother, but were there any architects during that time that made an impression on you while you were studying? Oh, well, it's so different to now. It was yeah. really hard to be informed. Um, yes. You know, a new periodical would come into the faculty and everyone would clamber for it and it would disappear (laughs) it was really hard to find information and we you know those are the days you'd actually go into a library and sit down and look through the architecture section of the library which I remember being fascinated by as opposed to now when we're just bombarded with information and images it's you know probably embarrassed to say in the first few years of university not having any aspirational architect you know not being really that inspired by any individuals in the latter years, it was sort of having a greater awareness. I was actually interested in Russian constructivism, strangely, but the works that were being done back then and then led into Corbusier and the sort of the classics. But also through university, which I think is really important, and something I tell students, is to sort of couple the academic education with some real-life connection to building sites in whatever mm. way you can. Yep. But it doesn't matter how you do that. Or even if not building sites, but working for a subcontractor, drafting, or any way you can. I was fortunate enough to work a few summers as a brickies labourer, and I learned a lot of life lessons along with lessons about um, building. And I still think that you know it affects my work now, what I learnt in those days. But the main takeaway was, don't ever talk about how hot it is, <laughs> because no, everybody starts thinking about the heat if you start talking about it. So I was told yeah. to shut up on a number of occasions when I was complaining about how hot it was. So that, that was an interesting life lesson. But yeah. And could you share maybe one more that you learned during that process? Because I think your point's very valid and we have a lot of architecture students, obviously, that listen to this and that hmm. come to us. So, yeah. yeah. As a brickies labourer, you know, sounds like don't have that much responsibility. I was keeping three brickies going, which is really hard work, especially if it's hot, not that I'd mention it being hot, no. of course. You have to have the right consistency for the cement, and if it's not, you're in big trouble because you've just wasted everyone's time, let alone mm. the cement. And um, keeping the role of the brickies working and, you know, making it easy for them, setting up bricks in the right place so that it's like a production line. But also understanding the drawings that you're looking at. So for me, it was like, how can I communicate what I want in the most simple and recognisable way? So that's what I'm thinking. I'm communicating with a person on site. I'm not doing a diagram for the purpose of that looks like a really lovely diagram. I'm mm. thinking, how can I best communicate information to the end user? Yeah. And so you finish university and then what happens? 
Well, I finished university and uh, I went straight into working. I worked uh, in a commercial practice in Perth mm-hmm. and was there almost 12 months of the day. I planned my escape. <laughs> and um, I went away with the intention of working in London for 12 months. Yes. And I stayed away for five years. Right. Which was fantastic. I absolutely loved London. And the great thing about having been there for five years is I go back now and it's like a second home. Okay. You know your way around and feel very comfortable there. And where were you working in London and what were some of the things you were working on? Yeah, I moved around a bit because the market was so good that you had opportunity to take a break and travel and come back, which I did. So I saw a lot of Europe and, and the States from the London as a base. Mm-hmm. London's also very cheap to travel from. That's another advantage about being in London. Mm-hmm. But I worked on a whole lot of interiors. And I worked on some new buildings, including an apartment building in Canary Wharf, which unfortunately didn't get built. But it was a really interesting process because um, it had actually been designed by architect Ian Ritchie, who's a wonderful architect. He had previously worked for Foster. And we were not in his office, but he was design-led and we were doing the design development and documentation. We had a lot of connection with him. In fact, I bumped into him at the World Architecture Festival recently and reminded him of that project and he very graciously pretended that he remembered me, which I'm sure he had no idea who I was, but it was very kind of him to make me feel that way. And what were some of the key takeaways from that time in London for you from a professional perspective? Yeah, the the most amazing thing about working there when I first got there was seeing the level of sophistication that came with building and the building techniques and the materials and finishes, which was a lot more sophisticated than what I had experienced before. I think there's been a big catch up over the years, but really still the level of sophistication is right up there. I mean, they're glazing systems and they go to a lot of trouble beyond what we do. And also the difference between having that wonderful history to work with and how you respond to that there is quite different to what we have, particularly in Perth. We do have things to respond to, which is all my work's all about, which I can talk about later, but you can lead the way with the building. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that when what I found, particularly then in the UK, was when a lot of UK architects had the opportunity to do a completely new building, They weren't that well rehearsed in doing that. And often it didn't quite sit that well, unlike a lot of work that was done in Australia that sat comfortably by itself. And, of course, they would be wonderful at making a new building fit into an existing situation, whereas they would have been better at doing that than us here at the time. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So you come back and what where do you...? I came back and I worked essentially for Cox for three years, but it was called Philip Cox Etherington Coulter Jones, which was a lot of names at the time. And that was great. I worked on some interesting projects, Joondalup Sports Stadium, the old Swan Brewery building, a lot of work. And a lot of late nights where back in the day you would hand colour drawings. remember doing an all-nighter and for a meeting that was meant to be at nine o'clock in the morning and then the client who was over from overseas decided that they were going to play a round of golf. So then the meeting was pushed back to noon and so we were told, oh no, just do a bit more. And then it was, oh, they're going to have lunch. So then the meeting became two o'clock. And I said, I think I might go home now. What are you going home now for? We finish at five o'clock around here. So anyway. And so 2009, you decided to begin your own practice well there's more in between so yes yeah I was 
Cox for three years, then left and went to quite a well-respected Perth company called Overman and Zudeville. Peter Overman had been at the forefront of townhouses and infill development in Perth, and he was a leader. He did wonderful work that is still relevant to today. And so I started working there. I was there for 16 years and a director for the last 10 of those years. And we did a lot of residential work. But over those 10 years when I was director, we did more and more commercial. So I ended up doing quite large mixed-use buildings, Mm -hmm. apartment towers, and a lot of interiors in the end. Um, So that was a great experience. Mm. But it was a larger practice, and I found at the end of that I was sort of outsourcing for assistance and doing a lot of work at home in the evenings because I had young children and I'd recently separated at the time. So my life work balance was all over the place, and it got to a point where I figured I may as well just do my own thing here, which is what I did, and it's been the best decision I ever made because now... I get to do all aspects of architecture, design, interior design, even down to product design, which yeah. is I like to take at the full distance if mm-hmm. I can, and can set my own pace and try to achieve my own goals and, yeah, loving it. Mm. And thinking back, were there any projects in those early times that you look back fondly with or they make you cry? Are there any things that were sort of a defining moment when you first began? Well, I was lucky that when I first started, I had a large, very large residential project, which was coupled with a moderately large one right next door. So it was a family with young children and their grandparents in two houses next door to each other. So these two houses were in dialogue with one another in Peppermint Grove and designed it so that the grandparents could be in the smaller of the two homes and have outlook from their living room to their, where their grandchildren were playing, which was actually a cave. We created this sort of cave that you'd look upon, and then they had great access to their grandparents. So that was a really good starting point and sort of set a standard in terms of sophistication and material selection and all those things. And then that evolved into a whole lot more work. And also, over that time, I had a better understanding of what I was about and what I was trying to achieve. That took a bit of time to really nail what I was about. I'd sort of reflect on my own history. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of clarity at some point, which sort of happened quite strangely about the same time that I made application for the Design Institute of Australia and Dulux Travel Scholarship. Yes. And it all came together at the same time because the opportunity for that aligned so closely with what I'd worked out that I was about, which was, yes, I'm an architect, but I've been trained in design and I don't have to have this narrow view that I just apply my design to architecture. I had a lot of experience as an interior designer, so I actually think of myself equally as an interior designer and architect. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of architects think that they can do interior design, but it often looks like an architect's done it. I really try hard to not do that. And designing at a sort of small level, like a furniture scale. So that's what I had resolved that I was about and that fitted really well. So I got to have this great experience and I went to London and Stockholm and then on to Copenhagen on the Dulux Scholarship Tour, which was fantastic. And that was a real eye-opener because we were meeting with not just architects but interior designers, product designers, fabric makers, and it was a perfect fit. It was wonderful. I mean, we just were about to go and talk about, I guess, one, two, three house, but what is, you've articulated a little bit about your approach to design, but maybe if you can just expand on that a little bit. Yeah, well, I think as I've 
said earlier, we get bombarded with images. And, mm. and as a, particularly if you're a student, just be overwhelmed with trying to keep up with, oh, I've got to have a little bit of this and a little bit of that in my project. And I find also in uh, Australia's architectural media that it's a bit samey looking. Everything is sort of following a trend. And I think that's so sad because Australia is so unique in so many different places in Australia. There's a uniqueness. And I think we should be pursuing what's unique about place, not trying to be same, same everywhere. And if I apply that logic to Perth, where I live, we have you know, many suburbs that have unique history. In the bigger picture, if you pull back, you think it's all the same. But if you bother to research and scratch and find the history of that location, how it came about, even, you know, obviously back to pre-European times, there's so much wealth of information to draw upon, mm. to be specific to place. And that's what I try to do in each of my projects, specific to place in terms of, firstly, my clients. Mm. I, mean, I deliver projects for my clients, that's not in question. Beyond that, it may be something particular about my clients that I take further, something particular about the site, the history mm. of the site or the history of the suburb, or the, the geological history or the flora, fauna of the location. All those things inform. It's a lot of research and then that harks back to my upbringing. My father used to research everything before he started work. And that's not something that I deliberately went out to mimic. But, you know, when I reflect, I think, oh, my process is pretty much the same as what my father did. Amazing. And these things are just unspoken things that you just pick up on, I think. So with that house, uh, one, two, three, we love the video that we just saw and we'll certainly include that in, mm. in what we describe. But mm. maybe if you can describe the site and then wine mm. rick, right roof tiles. Yeah, I had a great opportunity to do this project and I sort of leapt at it because the clients came to me, they had a previous scheme that had been done for it and they didn't feel that comfortable with it. So they came to me and I started talking about them and their own life experiences. And it turned out that the site in which they wanted to build this house was the site of a an Ampole petrol station that they had owned and ran for 30 years. Right. They lived in a suburb of Perth other than this suburb where the petrol station had been and they wanted to return to where they'd spent all their time working because they had obviously given a wonderful service to the neighbourhood. Because yeah. If you mention the old petrol station anywhere in the suburb of Netherlands and Dalkeith, everyone remembers it and yeah. everyone remembers it fondly and the great service that they had from Stan and his wife Anne. Yeah. So that really set the groundwork for something really unusual because they had uh, decommissioned the petrol site before I came on the scene and they'd, okay. sold, they'd subdivided into three lots and sold two mm-hmm. and kept the one on which I worked with them. And that was also right next to like a little local shopping centre, very little small strip. Yeah. So the site was interesting because it was in an established Perth suburb, which had a lot of interesting but varied architecture and big sites. But this site was a subdivided 350 square metre site where all the other ones were a 1,000 mm-hmm. and it was right next to local shops. So it wasn't a typical suburban home. So that's where the many sort of research stories for me started. So as I had done successfully previously in a few projects, carried out a photographic survey of the neighbourhood. Architecturally interesting or significant looking buildings, I'd take a photo of it, collect them all, and then I'd sort of look for things that were common or cues that I could take. Not to mimic, but just influence in Mm -hmm. how you might go about designing. And the one thing that shone bright from Netherlands was the number of arches in buildings. 
whether it's at a front portico or a window, and even at University of Western Australia, which is in the suburb, has arches everywhere through Winthrop Hall. But the suburban homes, arches were so prominent, I would say more so than anywhere else in, in Perth at least. So that was something to sort of put in the memory bank. But I wasn't about to leap at a house full of arches because if you look at anything out there at the moment, the world of social media, arches are the go. So yes. I aim to do something that's timeless if I can. Well, that's at least my goal, whether everyone can judge whether I achieve that, but that's my goal. So I was trying to avoid arches. And so in the building, that became expressed as half circles in everything other than an arch form. And that goes through parts of the building in the elevation, in planning, through the landscape, in the combination of curtain materials, mm. in cabinet work, all yeah. through the house. Yeah. So that was just a, trying to connect the building to its own neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. And then the other aspect that I'd noticed was there was, they were masonry buildings with small window openings. And that fitted quite well with what I was doing. Um, so we chose a face brick that was this beautiful sandy off-white mm-hmm. sort of dappled colours. A lot of the masonry in the suburb was painted white brick, but we didn't go there. We chose an off-white face brick because there are other things at play. And then we had a tiled roof, but it was a glazed white tiled roof, but there were tiled roofs everywhere through Netherlands. So it wasn't copying exactly what I saw in the street, but it was a tiled roof like the street. It was a masonry building, small openings like I saw on the street. And there were a lot of half circles and part curves and things going on that sort of at least came out of the neighbourhood in my eyes. And you've used the materials like to embellish quite a lot of things, both internally and externally. Hmm. Can you talk us through some of the effects with some of those? Cause they, yeah. Yeah. Then the other layer of story is trying to create memory of place. So for my clients, they were very proud of the fact that they'd given this wonderful service. And like any site visit, when the clients were there, had to allow an extra half an hour because the locals would come up and have a big chat and um, want to have some dialogue with them. So the design of the house for me was as much about the community as it was about serving my clients. Obviously, number one, serve my clients, but I looked for opportunities to go beyond that. And there were things externally. Along the footpath, I did a half-circle, low brick wall, which gave some definition of ownership of where their land started, but it also gave an opportunity to sit and talk to people on the footpath, which was more convenient than standing because they were often standing there doing that. And that became his vegetable garden in the front verge, which was just this wonderful outcome Yeah. because they gave him more opportunity to be in the sort of semi-public location where he could have dialogue. Yeah. And we put the alfresco, it was an upside down house in terms of living kitchen, dining, alfresco and my client's bedroom at first floor. It's a very busy street. So we elevated it above street level to give them better sense of security and sort of rise above the busy street. They have better outlook, better access to sun, better cross ventilation. But from the alfresco, if they choose, they can still connect with people in the street. But then the stories of the petrol station came into play. It was an Ampol petrol station, which had this sort of oblong rounded logo shape, which I sort of stripped back to the shape itself. And that became embedded in the concrete by the entry, which was almost like a pattern on fabric of these protrusions on the concrete. The client's brief called for coloured glass. He had a coloured glass sculpture, and I think he'd seen some of my earlier work that had coloured glass. So I looked for a reason for that, and then chose this sort of swirling green textured glass, which was meant to 
implied colour of petrol. And then at the first floor, there were amber, yellow, reds, which was meant to be drawn from engine oil. Then went on to design the dining table, which in plan was, again, the old Ampol logo inspired. And then the legs, two circular legs, which evoke a sort of feeling of stacked car tyres. There's many more stories. The balustrade itself is like spokes on the wheel of a sports car. Everything found a purpose. Yes. That's how I approach all of my projects. I have to obviously meet budget. I have to meet brief. And we do all of those things. And then I commence stories about opportunities. I can't start with the talking about opportunities where people think I'm a mad person. I have to win their confidence. And when we've met all the priorities of the basics of brief and budget and all those things, I say, and I've been thinking this. And more often than not, those ideas stick and snowball gets bigger and bigger and the story evolves and becomes, I think, the design process, I think, comes easier. With the roof, you've done something where you've put, obviously, the roof tiles, but very vertical. Hmm. Yeah, maybe could you just talk to us a little bit about that choice? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the building itself is quite articulated. It's probably different in terms of how people would go about having one big roof on a blob of building below. I was trying to make it feel like it's a series of components. So it's quite articulated, including the roofscape. So it's like a series of roofs that are expressed, and I see them expressed sculpturally with flat roof in between or void space in between. And the pitch and angle of the roof came out of our winter sun angles so that I could encourage winter sun to enter living spaces and our fresco spaces. Mm -hmm. So they start from high up north and low to south, which if you're going to put solar panels on, you do opposite. So I put solar panels on the west and to flat roofs where they get northern sun. Okay. So that was sort of the basic grounding of that. But I didn't want to do what would be a utilitarian roof. So in my mind, it's a more sculptural approach to a roof form. And so rather than a, a skillion roof as an element, it's like a capped roof to the form of the house below. So the tiled roof, which is raking, folds down vertically on three sides. Mm. Yeah. And what did you enjoy about working with brick on this particular project? Why brick? Mm. Well, the building externally is an expression of the tiled roof, brickwork and concrete. And there's a logic to the use of material. So I've used concrete where it's working structurally. Mm -hmm. So where it's working structurally, I've expressed it as the finished surface. And I've used brickwork everywhere else. But if brickwork is over the top of a window opening, I've changed the bonding from stretcher bond to like a vertical bond. Yes. To just express that this is doing something different here and the tall nature of the bond says I'm spanning more so than a, like a flat stretcher bond. Obviously it's not spanning, there's a steel lintel, but <laughs> it talks about what it's doing structurally mm. and where the brickwork sits over the concrete, it's also sitting vertically because it's also saying it's spanning, but it's also sitting vertically because when you combine brickwork and concrete, there's often issues with expansion and contraction and you get cracking mm -hmm. so i've created control joints at the junction of the brickwork and the concrete and where the brickwork is above the concrete it goes vertical because that is where i can carry the control joint up through the brickwork yeah so the detailing has informed the finished product and for me that's sort of the level of meaning that i really like to keep to my buildings because i love the detailing aspect yes I'm designing at detail as well as the bigger picture. 
And you can really see that in all of those different aspects. Neil, how long did this project take from the start to...? Ah, well, that's a good question. Well, we, <laughs> we caught the pandemic, so it took longer than it would yes. have. We finished in April 2022. I think we started in about January, building that is, building in about January 2020. So it took two years. Okay. Once upon a time, it would have taken 12 months. It was yep. just over. And the design and approval process probably took just under 12 months before that. Right. I must say, in the Council of Netherlands, in which it's located, they've had a lot of issue with infill density and quite often done really badly. That was something that was also behind this. I was trying to show an example of how you could do infill density respectfully yes. and the community would be happy with the outcome, which... Mm feedback I've got is wonderful it's all positive because quite often it's driven by the dollar and there's no thought about community I think it makes a difference when you can think about community but the council at the time were very supportive of the scheme so I didn't have to fight too many battles which is often the case yes so the planners that were there that are currently no longer there were wonderful to work with and very supportive and just looking forward and I guess revisiting how you approach design, what role do you see for architects in where things are going with the world and the approach? What role do you see architects having that? Well, I would love to see architects having a greater role in community. Mm-hmm. I think architects, to continue to exist as a profession, we need to think laterally in terms of what our profession does. We need more graduate architects to not be just architects, but to be community members in other fields, be local council members, be involved in all sorts of boards and activities. I think historically we have not been very good at promoting ourselves. There was a time when we weren't allowed to advertise. We can have like a limited dimension advert on our building and that was it. So a lot of people in my generation and older grew up with that and there's a hangover in thinking that you're allowed to promote yourself. Not the younger generation, it's all about promotion, that's wonderful, but I think we need to be more diverse and be more involved in community outside just directly architecture because we can make a big difference to people's lives. That's a great way to finish. Thank you, Neil. And we've had Winston and Milo here, here our two beautiful Labradors. All the jingling our, in the background. All the jingling. <laughs> Neil, thank you so much. It's been our pleasure to learn a bit more about the project that we'd seen probably in one dimension. And thank you for taking the time to explain it and the material choice as well. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow rate and review our podcast we are always looking for new ways to think brick if you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about there's a link in our show notes to let us know